it was very disliked by uh, a segment of readers. That didn't, it, I didn't, it didn't bother me. It didn't shipwreck me because even though they didn't like it, they were talking about it. They still went and read it. And so if I see my job as helping, as helping masses of people to realize the importance of a conversation and provoking them to engage in that conversation for days on end, I have been successful even if 98% of my readers think I've come to the wrong conclusion. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. Today on the Find Your Voice podcast, I get to talk with Jonathan Merritt. I think it's fair to say Jonathan is perhaps one of the most accomplished writers I've interviewed on this show. He's one of America's most trusted and popular writers on religion, culture, and politics. He's an award-winning contributor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor for The Week, and is the author of several critically acclaimed books. Jonathan has published more than 3,500 articles in respected outlets that you know and recognize, like the New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, the Washington Post, and Christianity Today. And as a respected voice in this field, he also regularly contributes commentary to television, print, and radio news outlets, and has been interviewed by ABC World News, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, PBS, CBS, and 60 Minutes. So again, Jonathan is an incredibly, incredibly accomplished writer and has so much to offer us in this conversation today. Jonathan and I spend time talking today about the difference between writing for private and writing for public. We talk about what he calls the question before the question, which is what every writer needs to think about if they want to improve their writing. We talk about the process of release and revision and how this strengthens your writing over time. And he talks about how to use words to spark your imagination. He also shares so many fun stories from his personal life as a writer, including how readers can go from literally sending you hate mail to sending you thank you notes. This is the kind of transformation you can create in a reader with nothing more than your written word. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Jonathan as much as I did. I learn more from Jonathan than I do from just about any other writer out there. And I can't wait to share today's conversation with you. So let's jump right in. All right, I'm here today with Jonathan Merritt. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so pumped to be talking to you today. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm so excited. I've been wanting to do this interview for quite some time, really ever since you and I met, which was August of last year. It's been, I don't know, almost a year since Mm -hmm. we officially met in person. We had known each other online for a bit before that. But one of the reasons I wanted to get you here on the show is... I had an experience when I met you where I just thought so much of what you're teaching, first of all, you're doing a lot of the same work that I'm doing with writers and that we're doing at Find Your Voice, but you have a lot of different ways of doing it. And there were so many moments as I was listening to you present at this retreat that we both were a part of that I just thought, 
that's so different than how I would say it or how I would teach it. And it really challenged me um, to think through my process and, and in such a great way. And I learned so much from listening to you. So I'm just really, really pumped to have you here. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Let's start with the first question that I ask everybody that I interview on this show, which is what does it mean for you to find your voice? You know, I think so much when, when I think about voice, I think about one of the, the most painful and difficult things that any human can do, which is to observe the way they sound. And a lot of folks, they, they, I, I find particularly young writers understand this in terms of their physical audible voice more than they do in terms of their writing voice. So if you if you ever say to somebody, if you record their voice speaking, if you were to play this back to me, the natural human impulse is to feel uncomfortable hearing <laughs> my own voice because it's normally coming out of my mouth and it's not coming into my ears in the same way, right? It, it's It's right. coming out in real time. The same thing is true for your writing voice, because it's normally coming out of your hand or your fingertips and not into your eyeballs. And so when people are having to observe their writing voice and to make make critical observations about it, the natural human impulse is to resist that and to feel uncomfortable by that in the same way we do with our audible voice. So for me, um, the, the, the voice of the author of the writer or to find my voice is to find that unique sound, the the unique shape that comes out of me when I'm being me as much as I can be me. So I'll often tell writers, imagine yourself when you're more you than you've ever been in your life. What do you sound like? So many writers, I think, are trying to imitate they're trying to be knockoffs. It's why when somebody's going to write a book, you'll hear people say like, I am basically Donald Miller, or this is basically <laughs> girl, wash your face or whatever yeah. the book is of the moment, right? Somebody is trying, they're trying to become derivative rather than distinctive rather than their own person. And so for me, it's when I am untethered from the temptation to become a derivative of someone else. And I am able to be the distinctive version of me that is unlike anyone else. Finding my voice is knowing exactly how I should sound in that moment. Mm. I love that. I'd love to talk a little bit about how you have come to do that for yourself because you've become a really prominent and I mean, I guess I would use the word prominent and important voice and distinct. You have a really distinct voice in the faith and culture space. And I'm curious if how long do you feel like it's taken you to get there? And what are some of the things that you've done to to find yourself in that place Mm -hmm. right now? You know, I love, there's a quote from Ernest Hemingway, and um, he, he says of writers, we are all apprentices in a craft where no one becomes the master. So I I don't think of myself as having gotten there. I think of myself as being closer to a point that I will never reach, which is full <laughs> alignment with my true self. I'm more aligned with my true self than than and my and my true voice than I was when I started a dozen years ago. And I, you know that's thousands of articles and thousands of words and books and all of that has sharpened that and has helped me to hone the craft of writing but I'm still not there. And some days 
I am embarrassed. I'm brought low, realizing how far I am from where I really need to be, from a true unencumbered voice um, that's not playing into the, the current conversation in a way that will garner attention or running away from out of fear from saying things that I believe are true and that must be said, but I'm afraid I might be criticized if I actually say them. And so I'm fighting all of these demons. You know, you you run into this a lot too, I'm sure, that in fact, you know, you people may not know, but you've actually done some coaching work with me and you've brought this up even to me, but the inner critic and some of those voices. Yeah. It's not just the, the, the writer who's starting out who just launched their blog three seconds ago. It's the seasoned writer as well. That voice inside you that still says to me, nobody cares what you have to say. It's already been said before. Who's going to listen to you anyway? This isn't any good. Those same, and it's a broken soundtrack, right? It's the same things that yeah. have been said for a dozen years to a dozen people. So for me, it is, it is a constant discipline of silencing those voices and that's what clears the path that helps me move closer to that point that I'll never reach. I so appreciate that you're talking about how those are voices that never go away. And it's a constant struggle for us as, as authors, even who have been at this a long time. And you and I both have worked with authors who are even further along that they're further toward the destination than we are. And they've been practicing for even longer than we are. And we hear those same struggle and the same insecurities and the same inner critic from them as well. Uh, one thing I know to be true about you is you have done a great job of saying things that need to be said, even when they're challenging, even when criticism is going to come back your way. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how, what are some practical strategies maybe that you've uh-huh. used to help yourself in some ways uh-huh. overcome that inner voice? And then how have you dealt with the lashback that has come uh-huh. back toward you? I think that, that people have to, writers, not just people, writers, Writers have to answer and often avoid what I call the question before the question. So Mm -hmm. oftentimes the question that we're asking is the second question, not the first question. And C.S. Lewis once famously said, you don't get second things by putting second things first. You get second things by putting first things first. You Mm -hmm. put the things that should come first in the right slot and the second thing will fall into place. So the question is, is not first, what should I say or not say? The first question is, who am I and who am I not? Because if I have a true understanding of who I am, then the words that I will or won't say are a natural extension of that true self. So I begin by asking how I view myself first. And I, had a, um, I have had a, a, a couple of key moments of transformation in my own view of myself as an artist, uh, a creative, a writer. One of them came early on uh, when I, I started to find that I would say things and people would get really upset with me and they would say I was wrong. And I'm, I'm an Enneagram three. If, if you, your listeners, if they're not familiar, I'm an achiever. And so that means that if I feel rejection from someone, they don't like what I'm saying, or they disagree with what I'm saying, or they call me stupid or the nasty things that trolls will call you, I immediately become deflated. I feel like a failure in my vocation generally. And so what I realized was, is that I primarily saw myself as an answer giver. And a lot of people who write nonfiction feel this way, that they're giving people the right answers 
and that the validity of their of their artful expression is dependent upon whether people accept or reject their answer, whether they agree or disagree with their answer. Uh, I went through a transformation where I began to realize that I was not primarily, as in my vocation, called to be an answer giver, but rather a question asker and mm. a conversation starter. And so, for example, you know, this week I, I published a piece with the Daily Beast, and and it was very disliked by uh, a segment of readers. It didn't bother me. It didn't shipwreck me because even though they didn't like it, they were talking about it and read it. And so if I see my job as helping, as helping masses of people to realize the importance of a conversation and provoking them to engage in that conversation for days on end, I have been successful, even if 98% of my readers think I've come to the wrong conclusion. And so I, mm. I am instead not trying to root my own sense of quote unquote success in whether or not I feel I got the right answer, but rather knowing that I'm asking really good questions and that those questions are resonating with a lot of folks. It's so good. It's, you know, one of the things I tell writers all the time that good writing is less about good grammar than it is about good thinking and good thinking always starts with good questions. Mm -hmm. So it's one of the reasons why writing prompts work so well is because they just get your brain to ask a question and that gives your brain a track to go down. And sometimes when we get mired, I think in the day-to-day necessities of life, we forget to ask the bigger questions that are really shaping who, who, who we are and how we are in the world. And we, you know, I've heard Don Miller, who's a friend, will say oftentimes, like, we lose the plot. Huh. And I think that's a great metaphor and image of what's really happening when we stop asking great questions in life. So I love that attributing that job back to the writer and the author is can we get people to start asking good questions again? Because when we start asking good questions, we really start living better as well. Huh. You mentioned that you had this personal transformation as you're talking about how you've evolved as a writer. I'm curious if you see a connection between personal growth and the writing process and then what you would call that connection. How would you name it? Yes, 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 yes. Well, I see a common connection and it starts from a core belief. So I have a core belief. And if you don't share this belief, you could probably get to my understanding of the connection between these things, but you have to come by a different way. I have a com- I have a belief, a core belief, that our stories are not incidental or accidental, that our stories are being co-authored by something that is greater than us and outside of us. Uh, you might call that the, a higher power. You might call that God or Jesus, or you might have another proper name for it. You might just call it community or the universe or whatever. But if you believe that the story that you're living is not incidental, it is not accidental, and it has been in part coordinated by something beyond you and greater than you, then the conclusion that follows from that, I believe, is that the story you should be telling 
is the story you are living. And uh, you can, you can, I believe you could come to that conclusion by other ways, perhaps. But for me, that's how I come to that conclusion. So what will happen is, and I, I fall in this same trap. It's not just other people, but I've found this with a lot of other of other writers that I've worked with, and you probably have too. They will be, they will write a book, and their book really, the center of gravity of their book is like some really cute or even smart idea that they hatched in the middle of the night or at a brainstorming session with people they trust and they fell in love with that idea, but that that idea is disconnected. There is no sinew. There's no connective tissue between the Mm. story they're telling and the story they're living. And that's why it lacks power. That's why the prose lacks passion. And so oftentimes I find that my job as uh, as a, a writing coach is simply to help the writer reconnect to the story that they're living, to take the prose that they're writing and connect it to the story they're living. And when they do that, it's almost like I'm clipping those, 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 those two clamps on a car battery. All of a sudden, the lights come on, the windshield wipers start flapping, and you go, that's it. That's it. Then you don't have to do anything, right? It happens. It sort of naturally becomes an outflow of connecting to that (laughs) energy center, that narrative energy center within the writer. The problem is, is that when you, when you do what we do, and I don't know if you find this maybe even in your own work or when you were writing your last book, it's hard for us to become both the, the mechanic that's helping to do that and, and the subject. So I find that I, I will be like, I, I'm struggling to connect to that and I need yes. someone outside of me to help me do it because I resist it at every turn. And I can't, you know, you can't be Skywalker and Yoda at the same time. It's agreed. I had a friend ask me recently, actually, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was something like, does like the Ali Fallon ever struggle with getting her words on the page? Or he was making a point basically saying like, well, cause you teach everybody this is, and this is what you do every day. So then does it come really easily for you? And it, I just laughed because I'm like, it actually in a way is harder because I can teach you the tips and tricks and tactics. And I still uh-huh. find myself cleaning my keyboard with a Q-tip when I'm supposed to be doing my writing because it's just, um, you know, the resistance doesn't discriminate. It's the same for all of us. And I wouldn't say it gets easier over time. I don't know if you disagree with that, but for me, it hasn't gotten easier with each book. I just know what to expect a little more. Uh So I almost like can, I almost like watch myself from outside of myself when I'm being distracted and I'm like, oh, you're doing this thing again where you're really distracted and you should be doing your writing. This will just last a little while. It's okay. <laughs> yep, yep. I think, I actually think for me, it's become harder because the stakes are so high now. Yes. Right? Like when nobody was really following me or listening to anything I said, when I didn't have critics who woke up every day hoping I'd fail, I could sort of... I could sort of like fake it a little bit, right? And so it'd be like, ah, that that intro wasn't great, but it's good enough for this random article I'm doing on something I don't care about for Home Life Magazine, which I don't subscribe to. (laughs) But now when I go, my peers and colleagues and people I respect are going to read this and they're going to read it with a critical eye, I can find myself frozen to find the opening sentence. I can wait hours on writing an intro 
Um, and before I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had those same, I wouldn't be encumbered in the same way. And so I find it's a lot harder. I found that, that, that writing has become harder for me over the last few years because people start to expect things of you. And when you're, when you're writing early on and it's a gift, young writers don't realize they have a gift sure. because they have low expectations. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great transition actually into the next question I want to ask you, which has to do with the difference between writing for personal growth and then writing for an audience. And then as that audience grows, it obviously becomes a wider audience. But Mm -hmm. one of the things I was really struck by, and I think I learned so much from you at that retreat in Kentucky was I started noticing what a great job you do at actually teaching a writer who's writing to an audience to hone their skill set. I feel like what I do is more like There's no um, red tape around this club. Come on, everybody join the club. You can gain so much from this practice because I really believe that. But then when it comes to actually teaching people the skill sets that it takes to, you know, to write the the best opening paragraph you've ever written, you, I, I just learned so much from listening to you teach that part. So can you talk about like, maybe the difference between those two things and how you would talk about them differently? Yeah, so I I think a lot about audience. I'm pretty I'm pretty obsessive about it. And it's one of the most natural things we do in real life and one of the most unnatural things we do when we communicate as writers. Mm. And so in like let's say you you have a joke and it's like got a little part in it that's a little off color. If you're telling me that joke, you'll tell it one way. <laughs> if you're repeating it to your grandmother, you'll tell it another yeah. way. The way in which we tell stories, the way in which we package information in everyday life is always dependent upon the recipient of that information, the recipient of that story. So that's the way that we naturally communicate in every area except as writers. And I think that it's because many of us grew up in an area where writing was romanticized. You know, Mm -hmm. there was sort of this this notion of a successful writer as the kind of person who went up to a cabin in the mountains and sat down and waited on the muse and wrote the great American novel and mailed it in and got a check back and there were accolades and appearances on the Today Show. (laughs) You know, that sort of is this, the pinnacle of the view. That's an outdated or antiquated view. And maybe in some ways it was an unattainable view for most people who were grinding it out as writers all along. However, that view is a view that feels disconnected from community. It feels disconnected from the kinds of shaping forces that are present in other kinds of writing. And so what I try to do is think very personally about an audience. So, you know, I write to a guy named Frustrated Philip, and he has a certain set of needs, concerns, etc. And I've honed that view, that understanding of Philip over time. He's a composite. He's not always a man, by the way. Right now, about 40% are women. 40% uh, of my audience are, is what I call second half Susans. But there, there are overlaps with their, their needs and their perspectives. There are things that are drawing them. And so when I sit down, I imagine myself in a room full of Philips with Susans listening in. And I think about what do they need me to say to them and how do they need me to say it right now in order to be shaped, impacted, moved, hooked, to continue to listen. And so I'm always trying to write 
with a specific person or type of person in, in mind. And so a lot of people sit down and they really are writing to themselves. And, and I used to think that was bad. I don't think it's bad anymore. I just think it's incomplete. Sometimes sure. there are things that you would say to yourself when no one is listening, and those things still matter. Because at some point, the things that you would say to yourself when no one is listening will marinate and incubate, and then they are ready to be recast uh, or reframed for a broader audience. And so that can be really good advice. It's just not complete. It's not complete advice. And I think you have to have both. I think you have to have those moments where you sit down and you listen to yourself. You listen to what you would say if nobody could hear you. And you listen to your own internal needs because my guess is you share a lot of the same needs with your audience, which is why they're resonating with you. Mm. But ultimately, the other side, the audience has to come into the conversation. They have to be a part of the equation. Or otherwise, you end up writing to the most narrowly defined audience possible, which is yourself. And the truth is, you are the world's leading expert on yourself, but (laughs) nobody else is. That was one of the pieces of advice you gave at Goodlit that was so that left such an impression on me because I have always told writers that they can write to a younger version of themselves, or they, you know, sometimes when you're doing that, the journaling, the kind of personal processing, the morning pages, whatever you want to call it, that's really who you're writing to, is you're writing to or for those voices inside of yourself. But the point you made, which is a great one, is that if you write that, it's not that it won't be helpful for you, but it probably, or you just have less control over whether or not it's actually helpful for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if, do you feel like you had to cross a threshold where you had done some personal writing and kind of like gained a sense of who you were in the world and what your voice was, and then you could start to share more publicly? Did it turn from one to the other? I think it's a, I think that writing, honing this craft in the way that I understand it is a process of release and revision. And it goes in cycles. Mm -hmm. You release this version of yourself, this style, this voice, and then you revise it over time. And so, you know, I used to write to what I thought was one audience. And I realized over time that wasn't my audience. I used to write in a certain way. And as I began to feel more free uh, to express myself and to connect my audience in more brave and bold ways, that changed. And so I think your writing voice will change over time because your understanding of yourself will change, because your understanding of your audience will change. And because both you and your audience will change. The Mm, same person who read, for example, I write a lot about politics. The same person who read my writing in 2015 can read my writing in 2017 after the election of Donald Trump and some real evolution in a public square, and they have changed. The way they receive information has changed. What they expect of me has changed. Things mean different things. Some things trigger them now that didn't trigger them before. Some some things they actually agree with now that they would have disagreed with before. They would have sent me Mm -hmm. hate mail before, and now they're sending me (laughs) thank you notes. And so it is a constant, it's not a static process where you go, this is who I am and this is who my audience is. It's that you are evolving and you are coming to a deeper understanding of both yourself and your audience over time. And so I always say, get out there, release it and revise it and be constantly, constantly updating and revising it. Frustrated Philip used to be priest 2016 frustrated Philip was thoughtful Tom Hmm. and frustrated Philip. There are people in that group who weren't with me when I was writing to Tom and there are some Tom 
who are now Phillips. Yeah, yeah. But I had to hold those loosely and then allow them to evolve as time went on. It's really good. It's really very helpful. I want to uh, transition a little bit to talking about your help with other writers because you have played a role in, uh, I mean, I don't know how many, but lots and lots of books that are out there that many of us know and love and read and appreciate. So I'm curious if you could just introduce us to what that work looks like. Yeah, maybe start there. What does the work look like? How do you support authors as they get their work in the world? You know, I used to do more ghostwriting than I used to and more collaborating than I used to. I've worked I've worked on about some in the low 50s probably of of books with other with other writers. I used to I could used to, you know, pump out four books a year. That is unsustainable. I have to sleep. I, I, I can't work that schedule. I, I have chronic pain that it can stay pretty low grade until I um, take on too much stress or work or don't uh, get enough sleep. I also like to work with people in person. And a lot of people then ask me to travel. So it means travel. It means switching time zones. So I, if I do one ghostwriting project every 18 to 24 months, I'm, I'd be happy. I could even do less than that. I really, I really, it just has to be a special project because it takes so much out of me. I do a lot more work now through my online writing course and I do some seminars and I do like phone sessions with a select number of people who want to do like, you know, proposal development with me. I do some literary agenting now. So if there's, I take on a handful of writers and that usually will include also a kind of proposal development phase before we shop the book. So I do kind of a a wide range and believe it or not, this came from another transformation moment. I was working with a woman to develop a proposal and she, she's a high level coach for some of America's biggest entrepreneur women, female entrepreneurs. And she, she said to me, you're not a writer, you're a midwife of ideas. And when she said that it resonated with me and that was my other transformation I am a I am a question asker and not an answer giver and I am a midwife of ideas not a writer for hire and that is those are the two two of the big transformations for me so I am looking for individuals who I feel like could use my expertise to help them birth an idea that deserves to exist. Mm. And that's not everybody. I, you know, I'm, I'm like you, you can't say yes to everybody. You, 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 you try to say yes to the people that you feel most simpatico with. And how do you decide which ideas deserve to exist and which ones don't? It's a, it's a, I look at three things with a writer, the three C's. I look at the three C's, whether I'm looking at a writer or I would say if I'm looking at an agent, that this is another thing. I I give these same three C's for people who go, how do I decide, you know, between agents? I always say you look at three C's, character, competency, and chemistry. Mm -hmm. So one of those is like, are you a good person? And do you believe what you're saying? Because a lot of people say things that you're really not sure they even (laughs) believe. They're saying it because they think they can make money. Uh, do I do I believe in the goodness of who you are and what you're doing? That's character. Can I trust it? Can I trust that it deserves to exist and it deserves to come out of your mouth? Uh, the second one is competency. Do you have the skills to do this? Right, and that may include, by the way, teachability. Some people, you know, you get on the phone with them and you realize they want to fight you on every suggestion, mm-hmm. and they're not they're not teachable. 
it's, it's, they don't have, they're not going to be competent as a writer. They can't handle rejection. They can't handle feedback and criticism. So that for me, is like a hard pass. And then chemistry is almost kind of a dating thing. Like, you know, and you know this really well. I know you've worked on some books with friends of mine and they take months to put together. So the question is, is like, do you want to live a significant portion of your next few months alongside this person? Yeah. Will you enjoy it? <laughs> is it going to be life-giving or soul-sucking? Mm-hmm. And so chemistry is a real, a real part of it. Like if I get on a phone with someone and their spouse is also on the line, giving feedback and disagreeing, and I'm having to manage multiple <laughs> personalities. Yeah. It's going to raise some questions, right? About whether I really want to put up with this yeah. uh, for the next however many months. So there are, there are a few things that, that go into determining whether that person is a good fit, whether that person and by extension, that person's project is a good fit for me. Yeah. So then once you get involved in this process with them, what are some of the things that you, so I'm especially interested in hearing some of the challenges that you hear these writers facing, because whether or not these writers, I know from a little bit from knowing you behind the scenes, whether these writers are new to the book writing process or not, none of them are new to the idea sharing process. These are all people who whose names we would know and recognize and who have an audience of people already listening to them. So so again, in our heads, uh, for a lot of us, I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, um, XYZ person would never struggle with doubt about whether their idea really mattered. But I'm curious if I'm curious what kind of obstacles you see them running into in the process. And tell me, kind of, give me, give me a little context around what, because there's a lot of obstacles. What kinds of obstacles are you are you are you reaching toward when you say that? I'm more. What I'm wanting is for our listeners to be able to resonate with. Because here's what I find. And I'll let you give your um, perspective, but I think it's usually the same five obstacles that I hear people struggle with, whether this is their first time doing it, and whether nobody knows them, or whether millions of people know them. And they've done this 10 times before. I hear pretty much the same five phrases over and over again. So my listeners have all heard me talk about those five things, but I'm curious if you see a consistency with your clients as well. Mm -hmm. I do. uh, Yes, I do. Uh, I find that there are, and and for me, a lot of it goes back to some of the things we've mentioned before, which is one, um, an unwillingness or maybe... um, uh, maybe it's not unwillingness. Maybe they just don't know they should, or maybe they're, maybe it's rooted in fear, but for whatever reason, um, a lack of connection between the stories they're living and the stories Mm. they're writing Two, they are prisoners of their inner critic. And the weird thing about being a prisoner of your inner critic is, is that the inner critic locks you in a cell, but you, you keep the key. Mm. I've never seen a, the the inner critic cannot keep you chained up, cannot keep you incarcerated if you find the courage to let yourself out of it. It's up to you to free yourself from the prison that the inner critic has put you in. And so that is often a challenge is to help people find within themselves the courage to say, no, what you're saying to me is a tool. It is a tactic of whatever you want to call it, the enemy, the ego, Etc. That is keeping me from from living the life that I feel drawn to, compelled to, uh, to live. So that that's another really big one. For for a lot of other people, I think it goes back to another thing I mentioned, which mentioned, which is lack of teachability. Oftentimes, the appre- to go back to the Hemingway quote, the apprentice thinks 
they're the expert. Mm -hmm. And I have found that the amount of work it takes to convince the apprentice that they are not the expert, the cost-benefit analysis just (laughs) doesn't work, right? The amount of work you have to do to convince someone that they don't know everything, by the time you get through that, you're you're both exhausted. So you... You know, my thing is to release them to life. I think life is a much better teacher. And after they go and live, live a little bit of, of life and life has disabused them of those myths of their own greatness, then they can come back and then I might be of better use to them. But I, uh, I you know, I think I try not to be codependent with, uh, with folks that I'm, I am, um, I, I, I'm helping to write. And I also think comparison is a big one. Sure. You know? And I'll tell you one for me, my favorite writer is Barbara Brown Taylor. And in some ways, her writing can really inspire me. So I can read some of her work, and then I get inspired to go and write my own, and I'll pick up the pen or open the laptop, and I'll start writing immediately after reading her, because she is like my spirit animal. But I'll find that other times I read her, and, I, and then I end up frozen. I end up stalled. Because I just Mm -hmm. go, that's just, it resonated with me so deeply, I think I could never do that. And you're right. I could never do that because that's her story. Those are her ideas. But what I can do is, is I can create a version of that, an iteration of that with my own stories and my ideas. But the problem is, is that you can read great writing and it can convince you of your own worthlessness. Uh, and it can, it can begin to turn up the volume on those soundtracks that are playing in the background that are telling us that we shouldn't be, or we can never do this well. And it can actually leave you crippled. So comparison, I find, I will often have to tell people, okay, that's it. You don't get to read, you don't get to read that because <laughs> they're clear. It's not serving you well. Yeah. Yeah. That resonates for me too. Let's try to talk about your own writing process for a few minutes because like you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you reached out to me a few months ago, told me you're working on a book and asked if I could come and support you a little bit throughout the process. Mm -hmm. And again, just adding to what we're talking about today, which is that nobody is above needing help and support through this process. But I thought it would be helpful for our listeners to hear you describe a little bit about what your typical writing process looks like, and especially about the roadblocks that you run into and then how you support yourself through those. Yeah. My greatest gift as a coach is my Achilles heel as a writer. And that's organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am the Wizard of Oz at organization. (laughs) I mean, I am fierce. I am clear. I can see it. I can say it. I can tell you, I can come in a room and in a, in a handful of hours, I can be like, move the pieces around. And people are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that book was possible. (laughs) I I never saw that. I cannot do that with my own work. I just can't. I get lost in the weeds. I see a thousand ways forward and they all look the same to me. I don't know which way to go. I'm frozen in fear. I, I really find that in my personal life, I'm very indecisive. And I think that that's because, like a lot of writers, I'm a perfectionist. So I'm like, yeah, that does seem like a good way uh, to start the book. But what if that's a B minus and there's actually a plus? And I go with the B minus and I miss out on the A plus. So rather than sit down and write the B minus, I will do the thing that I would tell no writer to do, which is just to continue to sit and mull over it until I get tired and quit and start again the next day. And so I commit 
all the same mistakes that I tell writers not to commit. And so it's why when I, when I called you in on our first call about my next book, it was like, I'm asking you a question like, should I, should, should I try to create an outline that's based on the topic or based on the narrative? Mm. That's such an elementary question that a first time author would be asking <laughs> me. And yet I was asking yeah. you. And, and I think, I think that, that one of the things that I, I, I have to remind myself of one, fall in love with rejection as quickly as possible. Two, stay humble. Mm. And so I'm having to stay humble, which means it was, you know, it was hard for me to write that email. I've never hired a, I mean, my, 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 my writing partner, Margaret and I, we, we have a rhythm and we talk to each other, but I've never like paid a writing coach. And so I'm sitting there going, Oh gosh, I know I need to email Allie, but it feels like so. And finally I was like, wait, Jonathan, the one thing you can remind yourself of is that you should stay humble. And what would a humble person do? A humble person would ask for help. Hmm. And so to reach out with you and to have uh, you know, a Skype call and to get some clarity is, is something that a lot of writers would not. It, it is a gift that most writers would never unwrap which is the help of their friends, yeah. the, the, the feedback of experts. Most people never unwrap that. And they sit in a room, you know, it's, it's three weeks after Christmas and there's all these gifts under the tree. <laughs> it's like these things are waiting for you to be unwrapped. They are tools in your toolbox. They are gifts in your network. But the, the thing that you will need in order to unwrap them is enough humility to ask for help and to present this bad version of yourself or this inefficient version of yourself, this struggling version of yourself to someone else so that you can find your way out of the darkness. Mm. Yeah, I think two things come to mind for me that happen for writers while they're in that process. And number one is back to what you talked about a few minutes ago about the romanticized myth we have of what the writing process looks like. I think a lot of us have this vision in our mind that writing is this incredibly solitary activity and that I have this stroke of brilliance and then I sit down at the keyboard and my fingers fly over the keys and then this, you know, the the next great American novel (laughs) comes out. And I've just never in my time, 10, 12 years of working with authors on books, I've never seen a book come together like that. It's always incredibly collaborative and and it needs that, that teasing out that you're talking about, which takes more than one person. And just because, and then the second half of this is, I think the other thing writers worry about is that if they hand off their work, they're either going to be criticized or rejected for the early parts of their work, or that they somehow lose ownership over it and that they don't get to claim the, it doesn't, they don't get to claim that it's their voice anymore. And mm. to me, I think both are, both are in, um, you know, neither thing happens. For the most part, if you're sharing your writing with somebody who's done this process before, they know that a first draft looks like a first draft. You know, I've seen so many first drafts in my life. I'm like, nothing shocks me anymore. So if you're sharing with someone who understands the process, then you're unlikely to be, you're unlikely for people to judge you the way you think. And then the second piece of that is, is you're always the one with your last the last say before this goes to be published or be shared. So it is mm-hmm. always your voice that the yep. finished product. Yes. And, and I, and it's so funny you mentioned that because I'm thinking even today, this morning I put on the coffee table, something I haven't, I haven't picked this thing up in six, seven, eight years. I put my copy of bird by bird down and I'm going to go back and read, you know, she has that famous essay on 
I think I can say this word, shitty first yes. drafts. And um, I thought I thought to myself, that's where I am. I don't. Ha- I'm not giving myself permission to to create something that's less than perfect, and I'm stalling out. And so I'm even returning to some of the early wisdom that shaped me um, early on and reminding myself of things that I already know that I may have forgotten or I've stuffed them in a backed cabinet somewhere, but instead they need to be front of mind. And so I think that's important too, is continuing to mine wisdom and to remind yourself of wisdom that you've encountered in the past to keep those, to keep the doors open and to keep the, 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 the inspiration flowing because most people, you're right. I don't, I know very few people that sit down and they just, it just flows. The muse hits them. It's never been that way for me. And, mm. and I guess it depends on what you want to do. If what you want to do is to write a book for your grandchildren and that's it, and you're going to you know, self-publish a book for your grandchildren, and it's okay if it takes you 20 years to write, that's fine. Mm. But if you, make real, if you want to make a real go of this, you really want to produce something for the marketplace or you want to do this for a living or for part of your, your career. That's a different ballgame because whatever else you're doing, it's like, uh, I think in one of the books that I read recently, it was like the truck driver doesn't get up in the morning and say, I'm not going to drive the truck because I don't feel inspired. (laughs) He gets up and he drives the truck because that's his vocation. And some days are better than others. Some days he enjoys it. Some days he doesn't. He has good days and bad days. And that for me is what being a writer is like. So good. Jonathan, I wish I could talk to you all day because you have so much wisdom and insight to offer, but we need to start rounding the corner to the end here. So I'll wrap up with the final question um, that I ask on each of these interviews, which is we talk a lot about on this show about how words have the power to shape our personal lives and our communities and the wider world. And I'm curious how you see the power of words helping you to shape the world. Yeah, I think it happens um, in the way that I write to, in two ways. One, uh, I think I am helping people to, um, to see some of the broken beliefs and the broken behaviors that are largely going unchallenged in the world today. Mm-hmm. And because of tribalism, because of toxic institutions that don't take kindly to dissenters and who squash dissenting voices within their ranks, there are few people who are willing to continually call this out. And because, frankly, because social media is such a fierce place. It's a, it's a hard thing to, to be someone who does a kind of critique for a living. But I, I try to be the guy who will say the things that others are afraid to say. I, I, get, I get from people all the time, uh, pastors in particular, will write me and say, thank you for saying the thing I wish I could say. Hmm. And that I feel like that's, that is a big part of my vocational calling, is to be a provocative voice, not pro- provoking for the sake uh, of provocation, but to be a provocative voice to say, this is not right, or this is not as right as it could be, or not as good or as life-giving as it could be, and to do that unashamedly. But th- that's a two-sided coin. Sure. And the other side of the coin is that I, am, I see myself using my words to spark people's imagination. Because my work has kind of, you might think of it as a double-barreled shotgun. One shotgun is the critique of the is. And the other one 
is the casting of the ought, Mm. right? It's helping people envision a better way. The way my dad says it is, is Jonathan, always make sure you're not just cursing the darkness, but also lighting a candle. And I think that that's a kind of cliche that has some real truth buried in it. And I want my work to be visionary. I want it to help people imagine a better tomorrow than, than today that will help them to maybe to find the tools, the skills, the bravery to cross the chasm between the is and the ought. And I hope my words do that. Wow. What a beautiful way to wrap up. You, from my perspective, absolutely are doing that. You've been such a gift to me. And I know you're leading the way for so many other writers who also want to use their words to do the same exact kinds of things that you're talking about. So thank you for the work that you do in the world. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Can can you let us know? I want all of our listeners to be able to go follow you and stay in touch with you and work with you if they want to. What is the best place for them to find find you? You know, my website is great, jonathanmerritt.com, and I've got a free newsletter that people can sign up for there where I give them the five kind of top headlines they need to be aware of from religion writing that week. I, I'll tell you for social media, the thing I love, and I feel like you're really good at this one. You're actually much better than I am at this, but I do find this one life-giving is Instagram. Mm. You know, Facebook can be a little weird. It can be like a party <laughs> where you're hanging out with like high school friends that you're not, you, you know, you have no interest in nothing in common with them sure. anymore, but you're kind of bound by sentimentality. Twitter, it can be so informative and yet so toxic. Sure. And Instagram, it's creative. It's visual, particularly if you follow people like you, where you're, you're also using it to, you do writing prompts and, you know, inspirational stories, and you've got a really good mix of things. It can be a place where you can interact with the person. You're not just consuming, but there's kind of a call and response that's happening. And so I, I really find Instagram, if people want to follow me there, it's just Jonathan underscore Merritt. And uh, I, I really love Instagram a lot. I, I'm just finding a lot of life there. I haven't ventured into TikTok. No, I don't know if either. you've done that. Me neither. I, we might be too old for it. I'm not sure. <laughs> I want to see, I want to see Allie, Allie Fallon's TikTok with dance moves and oh my gosh. You know, All the, wardrobe changes. The kids would be like, who's this old woman on TikTok? <laughs> no. No, no. Oh, amazing. I love it. Well, Everyone go follow Jonathan on Instagram and go check out his website. Definitely sign up for the newsletter. Keep track of him there. Thank you again, Jonathan. You're such an inspiration. We're so grateful. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.